Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Nancy, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about being on. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I, I came across you by uh, a, a rather bizarre sort of sequence of events. Your granddaughter, who happens to be a listener of our show, emailed in and said, hey, uh, if you haven't talked to my grandmother, I think she'd be a fascinating guest for the show. And then I went and looked, you know, what your work was all about. And I thought, yeah, we've never had a sculptor on the show, especially one whose work has spanned uh, so so many decades. So I really, really am thrilled to have you here. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to everything that you're up to in the world today? <laughs> that sounds like you want a whole lot of biography. Yeah, I, I actually kind of do. So feel free to go as long as you want. <laughs> well, oh, I, I think I'll need a little help, possibly. Uh, so, so I'll sort of ramble. Well, it's interesting. I'm being honored by my city this uh, at the end of this week, and one of the things I've been doing is sort of talking about how I got started. Everybody says, "How come? How did you ever get started as an artist?" Well, lots of things happened. Um, one of the things that happened when I was a little kid was that uh, I went to a Halloween party, and this is probably hypocritical or whatever apocryphal, but um, everybody was given a piece of gum and. Uh, this was when we were five years old or something, and you were supposed to make a sculpture out of it. So I made a little cup and saucer, and I won first prize. So I think that started my sculpture career. <laughs> but later on, I could see at school, um, my third grade teacher was very supportive, and she hung my pictures on the wall. And uh, some of the librarians used to give me books on sculpture. The fact of the matter is, uh, intuitively, I don't know why, I have no idea why or how it happened, but I really know how to use my hands. Somehow my hands work for me. Um, I'm really sort of an engineer without a license, and I, I have never studied engineering, but I know how things work somehow. I know how to put things together. I love to use my hands. I love, I guess my father was a florist, and I used to work in the soil a lot, so maybe I just like to be dirty all the time. But I love what I do. And um, But like everybody else, it's been a pretty tough journey. And in the olden days, when people had slides, uh, we used to send in our slides. And I probably was rejected more than anybody you ever met or ever knew. And somehow um, I kept getting rejected, rejected, and... I don't know. I fought my way through. Eventually, people started accepting me. Mm -hmm. We don't go through our lives alone. And the fact of the matter is, at uh, one point, a very fine lady, a painter, became my mentor. And she taught me things that I think helped me to learn how to bridge the gaps of 
how we get ahead. For example, I had four kids and a traveling husband, and I was alone a lot. And I said, but I don't have time to sculpt. I have no, how can I do this? She said, well, you know, let your last kid go to school. Take an hour. Take it two hours. And whatever time she's away, this was the last one, and don't do any housework, but just go into your studio and work. And just think, if you have two hours, five days a week, you've got 10 hours to work. And all of a sudden I thought, gee, 10 hours is a lot. Maybe I can do something in 10 hours. So, but going backwards, I guess I, um, I didn't go a straight take a straight line as I went through my life. Um, I didn't get into the school of my choice. So um, I dropped out. I was a dropout. And also to be a middle-class Jewish girl, I um, was not going to be a sculptor. That was sort of not the thing that my parents had envisioned for me. So um, I dropped out after two years of school. And then I spent a year sort of finding myself. I worked as a lackey in a pottery shop. I took extra courses in aesthetics and um, philosophy that I really wanted to and Greek drama. And then I prepared for a portfolio that year while I was working in this pot shop earning a living. And um, I got into the Boston Museum School and there I spent four years working very hard and learning the trade. On the other hand, there was so much I didn't learn. It's all what you learn after you get out. And it was kind of this, going back to this mentor, this painter, she really helped me to learn how to deal with the world of, I guess you have to be a marketer in this world. You have to be willing to take a lot of a lot of the stuff that comes, you have to be willing to take rejections. You have to be willing to pick yourself up off the ground and kind of wing it. So I, I learned a lot um, afterwards. And I, what I really learned was about how you have to just persist. I would take my slides and I'd go, Newbury Street is a big uh, place in, in Boston. And um, I would go, in those days you could go around and talk to people. And finally, I found a gallery that took me. And that was a big thing. Um, I also was in a gallery in a small place down in um, Rockport. And at that time, I had gone to a show, and I had seen all these wonderful small sculptures that I loved. And so I started doing small sculptures because I could afford to cast them. And for a long time, I did things in cast cement because that was cheap. But then I started doing small bronzes, and I found, oh, once you're in a gallery, people started to buy my work. It was amazing. I couldn't believe that something I did with my hands that I loved to do, people were giving their good money to me. <laughs> I, it was unbelievable. So I showed in Rockport, and then I showed on Newbury Street, which is the big art street in Boston. And I, as I did little things, I sold them. And then I started doing bigger and bigger things. And I was running into a problem. And my husband said to me, well, we can't afford your bronze, your foundry costs, so you'll have to do something. And I said, 
but I really, I just want to work. He said, you better get to teaching and I can't support you. So I started teaching and I started teaching at night and I started teaching by day. And that was how I was able to then start to cast bigger pieces. Whoops. Um, so after a while, I was showing in galleries. I can't even remember how many, 10, 12, all over the United States. And the big gallery I was showing on was um, Rigi Gallery uh, in New York. And that was... Uh, between 78th and 79th Street. And it was next door to the Forum Gallery and the Matisse Gallery. And I had, all of a sudden, I went to New York and there were my pieces on the, right in the window on 78th Street. And there I was on Madison Avenue and my pieces were there. And I went and all of a sudden, I couldn't believe there I was. So that was really marvelous. And one of the things, the most exciting thing that happened was my big, big show, you won't believe this, was with Rembrandt. So Rembrandt was on the wall and my sculptures were on pedestals. So that was sort of the highlight of my, uh, my gallery life, I would say. In 1980, um, the gallery closed. Uh, the rents went up, the people who were running the gallery were having problems. And that was really a major change in my life. I had to, uh, all of the galleries somehow, I started fewer and fewer, they were having problems, there was a bad time for galleries. So I had to think about what was I going to do next. By wonderful chance, I happened to run into somebody who was raising money for the Brandeis University Library. And she said, we uh, would love you to do a pin for us. And we raised money with this pin. It's called a benefactor pin. Would you do something? We'll give you a honorarium. I said, honorarium? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> and um, so I produced a pin. And I discovered that I was doing something I loved to do. I had never done anything small. Um, and that I was helping somebody else. I was helping money for, to raise money for the library. And I was earning a living. So I discovered this was a whole new part of my life where I started, and I've been doing this ever since. I do a lot of fundraising for organizations in between the public art, which hadn't quite started yet. And so I love that combination of doing something I loved, helping others, and earning a living. So I still do small sculptures, jewelry, and so forth for nonprofits. And believe me, there are a lot of nonprofits who need help raising money. Uh, I guess we all know everybody's after the same but. Well, time went on, and all of a sudden, um, my husband was a professor at MIT, and the head of architecture came in with his wife from England. And because they were new and you, you entertain faculty, um, we entertained the DeMonchos. And Suzanne was an urban planner. And she and I got along and she, um, she liked my work. And she said, you know, my children, my little boys, have read uh, Make Way for Ducklings. 
And we went down to the Boston Public Garden, and we didn't see that there were any ducklings in the Boston Public Garden. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, I think we should put a sculpture of Make Way for Ducklings in the Boston Public Garden. And I said, you're crazy. That's, you know, that sacred place. That's a ground. Nobody, you can't possibly. Don't be silly. Uh, she said, yes, we're going to do this. <laughs> well, so she was an urban planner uh, who was very interested in the way children use the city. So she talked to the mayor, big shot. She said, how do we do this? And the mayor told her. So we first, it turns out I was very lucky because it turns out that um, I had a friend who had a house in Maine and she knew Robert McCloskey, who was the author of the book. And so she called Robert McCloskey up and told him about Suzanne DiMancio and about me. And he said, well, I don't know what she said, but she must have said something wonderful because he said, how can I meet these wonderful women? So he came down, and I had made a maquette, a model of the ducklings from the book that he wrote. And he thought that was kind of cool. He liked it. He said, um, I'm going to come back. He lived in Maine. He said, I'll come back in six weeks. Why don't you make some prototype, prototypes of these ducks? So we'll see what they look like. So six weeks isn't much time, but I spent every day, every I, hours and hours making Mrs. Mallet, who is about 38 inches tall, and three babies. And they were pretty much what is in the garden today. However, um, they were... You knew they were ducks, but they weren't perfect. They were just kind of sketches. So he and his wife, Peggy, came down to see these six weeks later. It happened, to, it was February, and it was very snowy, and uh, but he came to my studio. And he said, you know, they look kind of, kind of big to me. And I, I thought to myself, well, you're used to seeing them on the page of the book. And, of course, the 38 inches and the, and the ducks themselves were about 18 inches tall. So he said, let's take them outside. So we took them outside, and they were very heavy because they were clay, and they were on, on armatures and, and boards, and well, I have these plumbing pipes that I use for armatures. So we very carefully took these guys out, and what do you think happened? I was in a school at that time, so I had a schoolroom, and there was a nursery school that was in the schoolhouse and as we took out the sculptures on the ground in the snow and everything, these little kids from the nursery school, their the parents were delivering them to the school. And they ran to these ducks, these three babies and the mother. And they were really just kind of sketches, but they were there. And they started patting them and they started loving them and they started hugging them. And the three of us, the four of us, actually, Peggy and Suzanne and Mr. McCloskey and I looked at each other, and we knew the scale was perfect, and we knew that the kids were going to love them. It was a magical moment. It was very, very wonderful. So from then on, he signed the copyrights away, and I made these ducks, which um, were put in in 1987. Um, and there was a big uh, to-do with all of this. 
And um, it's funny because it rained and everybody was saying, yes, it's a nice, it's a good day to put in ducks. <laughs> so that was kind of, that's the end, that was an end of an era. One of the things I did was to promise Mr. McCloskey that I would never reproduce the ducks um, in another place. They belonged in Boston. Well, along came Mrs. Barbara Bush in 1990, and she was giving the, um, the speech at Wellesley College, the commencement speech. And she was with Mrs. Gorbachev at that time. I'm not sure why she was traveling with her, but she was. And they had to do a photo op uh, at the Ducks because Mrs. Bush had promised, this is Barbara Bush, had promised to do this some weeks ago or months ago and she hadn't done. So they went to the public garden and they visited the Ducks, which had now been in for three years. Mrs. Gorbachev said, oh, I think those are very nice Ducks. Well, somebody heard this and told us, so Suzanne, my partner, said, well, I think that Mrs. Bush should give Mrs. Gorbachev these ducks. So again, I told her how crazy she was. So we decided, why not? Um, the START Treaty was coming up, was happening um, in 1991. And... Um, we wrote a letter to Mrs. Bush and asked her how she felt about giving these ducks to Mrs. Gorbachev. So about three weeks after we wrote, I got a message on my tape saying that um, we thought this would be a good idea, that it, the, the, this could be the entertainment for the ladies <laughs> while they were putting in, uh, doing the START Treaty. So anyway, we started this process, but uh, there was something going on during that period, and it was called the Persian Gulf War. So we were waiting for planes to come to take us to Moscow to put in the ducks, but the Persian Gulf War, and this was one of the most dramatic moments, I guess, of my life. We had gone through the process of casting the ducks, they were all ready. We were waiting for a plane um, to take us. The war was heating up. And I was watching the television. And all of a sudden, I saw the bombs dropping. And I thought, oh, my God. My selfish side said, my project is gone. We're never going to go. And turns out that I was so mad at myself. I was worrying people were being killed and I was worrying about myself. Well, of course, I turned it around immediately and, and realized. Anyway, the war was over very fast. It was five days or something like that. So all of a sudden, about three months, four months later, I got a call from uh, Susan Porter Rose, who was Mrs. Bush's chief of staff, and she said, I want you to get ready. We're going to Moscow in two days. This was in June 1991. 
And so <laughs> I watched the television, and she told me to watch the television, and there was Mr. Gorbachev asking uh, the president, President Bush, to uh, come, and he wanted to get this 1991 START treaty going, which was a reduction of arms, if you don't remember. Anyway, uh, two days later, this plane comes up to where I was, and... <laughs> picks me up with five men, 15 tons of equipment. Uh, we had footings, 40-inch footings that had already been cast. We had diamond saws. We had cement. We had even water. They brought, they brought all sorts of equipment. And we loaded up. I don't know if you know what a C-5 plane is. It's probably got other numbers and letters and that sort of thing with it. But um, it came and picked me up, and we, uh, they had come from Andrews Air Force Base. So I went up to the top where the pilot was and met Mrs. Uh, Rose, Susan Porter Rose, who was the chief of staff. She met me, and she kept me into this lovely cabin. And we, my men were down where all the FBI and the uh, I don't know who else, all the other guys were who were part of the uh, team that was coming over to protect the uh, president. Anyway, they were down below in storage. <laughs> there I was up there. And um, the pilot said, would you like to sit next to me and be the co-pilot while we take off? And I said, oh, my God, would I? <laughs> so I put on all this, you know, these big earphones and everything. And I listened to all the things that were going back and forth. Anyway, we took off, and it was just very exciting. Anyway, then um, I went back, and there was this, there's this cabin, and we had dinner. And there was a lovely soldier or sailor or whoever he was who was there, and he prepared this beautiful dinner for us, and we had a glass of wine and so forth. I'm traveling where the president and his wife always travel. You have to understand. <laughs> so... Then Susan said to me, well, Nancy, it's time to go to bed. I said, oh, okay. So <laughs> I, I had my jammies and I had my, and all of a sudden I was introduced to a bedroom and I went to Moscow in a bed, like a real person in a bedroom. <laughs> it was amazing. So eventually we got there and um, I went to see the site. So the site in Moscow is at Novodevichy Park, which is um, a beautiful, beautiful park. And there is uh, a duck pond. And then above is a 16th century convent, which has all these gorgeous finials and little uh, golden domes. And they reflect into the, into the duck pond. And of course, there are ducks, real ducks in the pond. And next to it is a cemetery where all these famous people are buried. Uh, Khrushchev is there. Dostoevsky is there. It turns out Mrs. Gorbachev is there. It's a famous, famous cemetery. And this park is about 15 minutes from Red Square. So I was taken to this site. And, of course, I cried. It was so beautiful. And I have to tell you that Mrs. Gorbachev and uh, Rebecca Metloff, whose husband was the ambassador to the USSR, which it was then. And um, they had looked at eight different places 
Mrs. Gorbachev wanted to find the most beautiful place in all of Moscow for this, these ducks, and she did. So at some point, we spent the week there. My men, we put in the footings. We dug the trenches. It was interesting. The children, we had the ducks are uh, on sort of um, uh, squares. of. Uh, they're on kind of metal squares. And so they were, we, you, you dig a big ditch. And then on the side, the ducks were just sort of set there, you know, in a row. And um, the kids, naughty, again, they just patted them. Of course, now they were real ducks. They really looked like ducks. But the kids didn't know the story of Make Way for Ducklings. They had no idea what was going on. But they would pat them, and they'd go, Jack, Pat, Pat, Pat. They'd go all the way down the line, and then they'd come back again. And they would just you know, path them. And it was really fascinating. And they, as I say, they didn't know the story. Well, eventually we put them in and we worked for about a week putting them in. And there were a group of Russians who were working with my men. And it was quite, it was amazing how these people worked together. They had no common language, but they had a common goal. And they worked together and they had such a good time. So eventually we put them in and eventually uh, there was a ceremony and my husband came over with Mr. McCloskey and we uh, went through this whole wonderful, um, this wonderful time of, of installing the ducks. I forgot to tell you that the ducks in Boston are set in old Boston cobblestones and one of the things that I insisted on we not oh he brought over all these uh, <coughs> excuse me the ducks um, and all the footings and everything we brought over five hundred and fifty old Boston cobblestones because I wanted to make sure that the ducks were we brought a part of Boston to Moscow. Well, one of the most exciting things was that we went to several dinners, state dinners, and that was a lot of fun. Um, I have to say that this whole week I was treated like royalty. It was it was it was quite amazing. I've never been treated so well. Uh, it's kind of fun to travel with two first ladies. I guess that's what it all amounts to. Anyway, the uh, the state dinner that we went to in um, at the embassy, the American embassy was the one I'd like to tell you a little about, although the one at, uh, at the Kremlin was quite marvelous, too, but it wasn't quite the same, except that when they served dinner uh, drinks, there must have been eight different drinks in all different glasses, and there are some absolute wonderful um, murals in the Kremlin where we had dinner that nobody ever gets to see. So that in itself was quite an experience. However, when we went to the American Embassy, everybody was given a uh, sort of a number, like when you go to a wedding or something, for the table. So my husband went to one place, and Mr. McCloskey went to another, and I was given another. And where I went, somehow one wall was full of, it was sort of black with reporters. A huge wall was black with reporters. And I was the first one there. And then um, all of a sudden, this 
sort of small man came up to me and as I always say, well, hello, my name is Nancy Shern. And he looked at me and held my hand. He said, my name is Isaac Stern. <laughs> well, I almost faded. Isaac Stern. I'm shaking hands with Isaac Stern. <coughs> well, it turned out that I had spent time, we had done a sabbatical in Israel, and Isaac Stern had just come back, and he had played through the bombings that were occurring in Israel. I don't know if one remembers all of that, but anyway, he played all the time the bombs were falling, and we talked a little bit about Teddy Kollek, who was the mayor and whom I had met, and somehow I found things that I could talk to about him, but I was really nervous because my husband was a musician, and he would have talked to him about music, and I didn't feel I could talk to him about music. Well, anyway, we're sort of chatting there, and all of a sudden, somebody comes in, and who was it? But it was Mr. Gorbachev at our table, our, our little table of 10 people. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, who comes in but Mrs. Bush? What? Isaac Stern? <laughs> Mrs. Bush? <laughs> Gorbachev? Well, and then other people came in, Mr. Vesmertnik and uh, Tanya Stern. Uh, Tolstoya, who is the niece of Tolstoy, and um, I can't tell you all the Russian people, but the top people um, who were part of <laughs> this government were at our table of ten. Um, so that was that was dinner at the embassy, and that was the start treaty. The thing that's kind of interesting about this story is that three weeks later. Three weeks later, the coup happened, and that was the end of Gorbachev. So that's my Russian story. Um, what would you like to hear after that? There are lots of other um, bits about public art, but maybe you'd like to yeah. ask some questions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, I actually want to start at the very, very beginning of this, uh, which I have been known to do. One of the things that's really interesting to me is sort of that moment with uh, the stick of a gum in the cup and saucer. And I'm really interested in your perspective on how you start to recognize moments like that in your life and then also recognize the mentors who guide you uh, through those processes and through those moments. Um, I'm not quite sure what the question is. Do you want to be a little more specific? Yeah, you know, so in your life, you have moments, you know, that that are sort of molding moments, right? Ones that shape your career and ultimately kind of, you know, determine the path that you go down. And yours happened very, very early. And I'm really curious how you learn to recognize those kinds of moments. Well, it's, I guess it's hard to because, although I think most of the really important moments that you're speaking of, come out of um, some sort of negative situation. Where, um, for example, I go through periods since I represent myself. I don't, ever since I left the galleries, uh, I don't have an agent. I've never had an agent, yet I've done things all over the world um, and, I, and all over the United States. And I have, I've had done a lot of um, sculptures. But it seems as though, for example, I did the tortoise and hare in Copley Square, which was um, it, it was at the it used to be at the end of the Boston Marathon, but when the marathon got so big, it was changed. But I I'm a runner. I was always a runner. Marath- uh, not big marathons, but I always I've run forever, and I have watched the Boston Marathon ever since I was a little girl. And I had gone through a period, which is when you're self-employed, you go through periods of ups and downs. And I was in a period of 
sort of down and I didn't know quite what I wanted to do and I was looking around you know what's next so um, I thought you know I really love the marathon I think I'll go down to Hopkinton and see what it's like there that's where the marathon starts and it turns out that this town had just a little tiny white line it's this, you have to go back to I'm going back to about 1995 I mean now it's so famous of course but at that time, it wasn't very famous. It was one of those things that happened. And I found that the town of Hopkinton, you know, really um, needed something. So I thought, well, this is something I think I can do. I didn't know anybody. I didn't do anything. But I started trying to sell them the idea of big tortoise and hare there, a good metaphor for the marathon, slow and steady wins the race, that kind of stuff. Well, I couldn't get support. And it wasn't until I found that corporations didn't want to support a little town like Hopkinton because nobody would ever see it. So I, it turns out there was this lovely lady from the Friends of Copley Square, and she said, we want to humanize Copley Square. We want the, the tortoise and hare to be in Copley Square. At which point, it was really interesting, I got corporate support because it, they, these corporations were going to be seen. In Hopkinton, they'd be seen for one day and that would be the end of it. Nobody knows the town of Hopkinton except the beginning of the marathon. But I felt so bad for that town because 10,000 people at that time, that's all they were running, 10,000 people were um, trashing the city and then leaving. And I, But it didn't work. On the other hand, Doing that sculpture turns out to be something that was came out of kind of a negative sort of something that happened. So, and then now it's become very, very well known because of where it is. So that's one example. Um, and when I, it seems as though the most important things that I do almost, except when people come to me, and they do that too, come out of a negative um, feeling that I'm looking for something to do. So that my, my life, my commissions, um, sometimes I have three at a time and sometimes I have none. This is kind of the, you know, the way it works. It's never a straight line. As I am about to say in a speech, I'm going to give this. There was there's no GPS to, to guide me in my journey of life. So different things have happened. Uh, I have done a very large um, sundial at the Mass General to honor the nursing profession. Now that was really hard because I had to deal with. Can you imagine going in front of the board of the Mass General Hospital, the most one of the biggest hospitals in the world? Um, and convincing them that a sundial was the appropriate thing to do for their hospital. Well, they, they agreed. But that was an interesting thing in that we had to find a, we had to find sun for the sun, for the sundial. You can't have a sundial without sun. So I had an architect who did a, a one of these, I don't know, computer things. And she finally found a place, and we found a place, and guess what? There was so much stuff underneath in the ground that we couldn't even start. There were all these conduits and wires and whatever. We could never install it. 
So, and then meanwhile, the site that we picked, there was a construction um, vehicle because they were doing some construction. So that got delayed for two years. So we put the sundial in in a temporary place. Then two years later, we had to move it again. Well, the kind of persistence that one needs to do public art, I guess to do anything, I don't think anything is, nothing's easy. There's no shortcut to doing anything that's important. But I, in some ways, I guess, I think a lot of the best things come out of almost failure or things that are not really, um, that are kind of contrary to the way we expect them to go. Life is not a straight line. Yeah, without a doubt. But I think one really needs help. None of us go through our lives alone. And I think that's one of the most important messages. We all get and need help to get wherever we're going, no matter how strong uh, we are, no matter how much we want to do something. We all need a lot of help. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to ask you a question about something you said earlier. You said you're kind of like an engineer without a license, and you've had this capacity for using your hands. And this is kind of a bizarre question, probably. But do you think that ability to use your hands can be learned? And can that ability, or you know, that that sort of metaphor of learning to use your hands be applied to other art forms, like writing or or doing what I do? And if so, how? Uh, I think the creative process is similar in all fields. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for example, if you're a writer, or uh, I don't know how much editing you do, but uh, it's, I'm, for example, I'm giving a speech and being honored by my city at the end of this week I mentioned. And I have gone over this speech that I'm writing at least 20 times, and I keep recrafting it. As I make a sculpture, I feel it's almost like... Um, if you think about circle, a circle, I keep coming in closer and closer and closer. I tear it down. I put it together again. I take some pieces out. I, I think every creative process is very much the same. I happen to do it well with putting things together. And I guess a writer, you'd say, or an editor, or, or if you're changing whatever you're doing, um, we, we have different parts. In a sense, I think... All of the arts, if you're a dancer, you have to practice and you take away something, you add to it. There's something very, um, very much the same, I think, of all of the, um, all of the arts or anything that you're doing that's creative. Don't you think in your, in your world, you, you add, you take, you cut, you splice, you this. I mean, I do this with the clay. Or I put, but I think the concept of putting something together as an entity is possibly a special art. Um, People say, well, when are you finished with something? Mm -hmm. I think that, in some ways, you can feel you're never finished. But at some point, you learn that this is the time to stop. If you go any further, and this is experience, you go any further, you ruin it, um, or you can ruin it. There is that, and I think that's probably at the core of this whole creative process. How do you know when you're finished? Mm -hmm. And how do you take away this and know that it works? That's the famous phrase, it works. And somehow we, any creative person, understands that phrase. 
it works. Um, you can't define that. You, you, there are no words to define it works, <laughs> but we all know what we're saying. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. You kind of know when it's done. Uh, you know, one other question around sort of this whole idea of using your hands. You, know, you mentioned that you grew up with a father who's a florist. So, yes. I mean, you've had, you know, this really interesting experience of something out of nature and, you know, looking at it with colors and all these different things. And I'm really interested in how that has shaped your perspective and, and your view as a sculptor, like how that influenced what you do. Well, color is not really the thing that has been part of my sculpture. I do it with my patinas, but it's the form, it's the building. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It's the idea that you plant a seed and it grows. It's the idea that you start a sculpture with some sense and you build it and it grows, it flowers. There's a metaphor here of uh, uh, the process of growing and how complicated it is to make something grow. And if we think about Mother Nature and, and seedlings and, and flowers and so forth, and, and the, the, the earth, I mean, I love the earth, I love the clay, I love the feeling in my hands that, uh, that I can make something happen <laughs> with this mush that's in my hands. Mm-hmm. And there's something about soil that, the feeling that you could make something from that bush and make it grow into something beautiful. Um, I happen to love working in wax. Uh, I don't get a chance to do it except with my small pieces. I love working in wax. It's, it's, but in big pieces, it's not very forgiving, but there's something about that, that wax and you have to work very quickly with wax because um, the way I keep it, I I have a big uh, hundred, I don't know what I'm going to do when we all use lead lamps, but I use a 100-watt bulb, and it melts this big tray of wax. And in the begin, in the middle, it's liquid, but as you go out centrifugally, it gets harder and harder. So I can choose either from the middle of this big um, uh, pan of wax from the very beginning, or I can choose from the outers to get harder stuff. But you have to be on your toes when you're working with wax, because it's going to get hard very quickly. So that's sort of exciting because there's a, a, a you get your head is right at the top. You know, you have to quick work. That doesn't mean you can't make changes, but there's something about the immediacy of having to do it very quickly um, that I think is it's challenging. Let me say. Whereas with clay, you can put it on, and it's you know, it's 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 kind of rhythmic. It's almost like a dance. But with wax, it's fast, and it's kind of exciting. <laughs> so, you know, one of the other things you brought up multiple times is this uh, ability to deal with rejection and failure, and building this capacity for it. Uh, do you think that building a capacity for it is something that comes with age? Or do you think it's something that can be accelerated and can be learned? And then the other question sort of tied to that is, you know, you grew up with a Jewish family, so you're dealing with sort of these cultural expectations. The reason this is particularly interesting to me is, you know, I come from a culture where there are a lot of expectations as well. So I'm interested in in both both of those questions and kind of how you handle that. Um, Well... I think the the greatest disappointment of my life was when I had this huge show um, 
And I was so proud of myself because it was the first really big show I had. I don't know, I must have had 40 pieces, and it was really a big deal. And um, a lot of people came, and at the end of it, my father said, so did you sell anything? <laughs> and, of course, I said, no. <laughs> so eventually I did. But at that show, I didn't. I was a new, you know, I was new to it. So I think the expectation was was greater than, you know, and uh, how are you going to earn a living and that sort of thing. Um, the other question was, what was the first part of that? Well, I mean, this ability to deal with rejection and failure, oh, rejection, that yeah. something that, you know, is you just build a capacity for it with age and experience, or do you think we can accelerate that process for building a capacity for it? Um, I think, I don't know, it was much harder to deal with uh, rejection when I was younger. Now that I'm older, I still get rejected. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I've learned is that if you put 10 balls up in the air and you get rejected from two or three or even four, you still have some balls up in the air. So one of the things that I learned very early on to help me with the rejection as a young kid, I mean, I would go home, I'd come home crying to my husband or my friends or, you know, I was, I've been rejected again. Um, but I think if, and this is how I've sort of saved myself from going into these just deep despairs, that there's always, I always have at least five, six, seven, eight things going at once which helps you to um, deal with the rejection, young or old. But I think the older you get, the more you can understand. Now, some people can't work like that. They need to work on one thing at a time. But I think it's a real mistake because then a rejection is it just that's the end of you. Whereas um, right now I'm waiting for several things to happen. And all of a sudden maybe three will happen and and for a while, <laughs> but there's always something going on. So, and I also think rejection does, if you have the guts for it, rejection is a way to come back and fight it out and it makes you stronger. So that, uh, rejection can somehow sometimes be a really positive influence in your life. And we have to expect that we're going to be rejected. I don't think anybody, uh, anybody goes through without being rejected. I mean, it's part of life. And then acceptance is the other side. And so we have to be happy when we get accepted. But then we can't say, oh, well, I'm not going to do anything anymore. As soon as you do something, then you have to be on to the next thing because you don't want to lose what's going to happen next. So the more you get accepted, the more you should move on, I think. You should move on to be ready for the next thing, and whether it happens or not, but be prepared so that if you get rejected, you have something else to come. I always try to keep that well filled if I possibly can. Hmm. So, you know, one of the other things I want to ask you about uh, is – how you create work that's timeless, which I realize is a big question. You've had a career that has spent multiple decades as a creative professional. And to me, you know, as I, as I look at the internet and the fact that we're addicted to this sort of short soundbite world and, you know, things whiz through our Facebook feed, I can't help but think the things that are going to last and the things that are going to have true impact on us are the ones that are going to be timeless. And having done what you've done, I'm really curious on what it is that makes something timeless. Well, I have a tremendous advantage 
uh, of being timeless because I work in a medium that's almost timeless. <laughs> so my musician friends say, oh, I play something and it's gone. Or, uh, you know, people work on paper. Maybe paper doesn't last as long as bronze does. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, physically, my material is timeless in a sense. I mean, it, uh, it's going to last centuries anyway. It can. Um, although at the rate the ducks are being padded, I'm afraid that people are going to go through Mrs. Mallard's duck. Uh, her bill is everybody thinks it's good luck, so I'm afraid people are going to go right through. I don't, I don't know how to really answer that question. I don't know that my things are timeless. They're only timeless physically. I, uh, art is changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are not the the foundry business is uh, getting to be more and more obsolete because people are using different materials and they're doing different things. Art is different. There's a big netting that was just put up at the Greenway here. It's and it's called sculpture, but it's to me it's a it's a net and it's not sculptural. It, it's a moving more organic thing people are doing installations and they don't last they're 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 representing this instantaneous world that we're living in so i don't know what timeless means although i mean make way for ducklings that book was written in 1943 will it last Will people be reading books in a hundred years? Will that book even be known? Will my sculpture, would anybody care? I, I don't know. I don't know. I like doing things out of children's literature. I like doing animals. And one of the reasons I think this is, this may be the answer to your question that I hadn't really thought of. I love to do animals. And um, one of the things I learned very early on through seeing a park where there were lots of kids, sculptures of kids, and they were playing. And the kids, the real kids who came into the park, didn't pay any attention to the sculptures of kids. What they did pay attention to was a woman who was holding a cat. And they came and they patted the cat. And I thought, ah, there's something important about this. And when you're in a park and there's an animal, the children run to that animal, and the parents never say no. But if the, if there's a picture, a, a sculpture of a man in a business suit, then the parents will say no, don't, and the kids don't even want to go near it. So I discovered that children and parents, people, adults, love animals, and so there's this wonderful feeling. Whether they know, for example, I mentioned the ducks, whether they know the story or not. I've done Eeyore, I've done Piglet. They love hugging them. I've got a big bear up in Maine. The kids love patting him and sitting on him and going and sort of going under them and over them. And I've done prairie dogs, big prairie dogs. The kids love to interact with animals. So animals, this is sort of whatever it is that goes between animals and people that's timeless. There's, it's that relationship, that twinship that's wonderful that happens with, um, 
with animals. And maybe that's the answer to the timelessness. Um, I don't think my, my people are going to last, <laughs> uh, but I think my animals are timeless and will remain that way. Wow. Well, you know, we're, we're getting close to about an hour and, uh, you know, this will be interesting to hear your perspective. I, I want to close with, you know, the final question that I usually close with, uh, you know, on all our interviews at unmistakable creative, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Somebody unmistakable, somebody unmistakable or or something. Wow. That's a tough one. (laughs) Um, I don't know that I know the answer to that. I have to sort of juggle around in my head. Um, I don't really know. I think, I guess it has to, it has to do with how something, how you relate to something, how it, if it, if it hits you, if it, if it makes you think, if it makes you feel, if it makes you cry, makes you sing, makes you laugh, makes you dance, makes you want to live, makes you want to die, makes you, if it has an emotional impact. Hmm. It's a tough question. I guess <laughs> I wish I'd been prepared for it. <laughs> I might have thought a better answer. Well, no, I, I think the answer is, is brilliant. And, and that's why I like asking that question because it's always interesting to hear what people are going to say. Uh, it's never the same. And, uh, you know, it, it's always eye-opening. I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights uh, and your journey with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. This has been really, really interesting. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure telling my story to you. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.